Well, hello. Are you guys excited to be here tonight? Me too. This is probably one of my favorite nights of the week because I get to be with you guys. Super sweet. Thank you, Taylor, for that amazing intro. Wow, I feel super loved. So as Taylor said, my name is Katie Sombrio, and um, I am married to that really attractive man that spoke last week, Charles Sombrio. He's behind. Yeah, anyway. Um, we've been married a little over a year, almost a year and a half. We got married last summer, and uh, we moved up here. Uh, we're both from Texas. We moved up here in 2014 to help start the Chi Alpha here, and we've been on staff since then, and it is an honor and a privilege to serve you guys. We love our jobs, and that's because of you. You guys are amazing, so love you guys a lot. So I have three disclaimers for you tonight, just so you can get to know me a little bit. The first one is that my name is not actually Katie. I know. It's Bob. I'm just kidding. No, it's Dorothy Catherine. Dorothy Catherine. Yeah, I said Dorothy. I know. That's my first name. Yeah. So I've been going by Katie my whole life, but if you really want to call me Dorothy, I'll answer to that too. And so, um, so Dorothy Catherine, the second disclaimer is this. I said I'm from Texas, but that's kind of a lie. I actually don't really know where I'm from. Um, I grew up all over the world. My parents were missionaries. Um, and so Texas is just kind of like, I just say that. That's the short answer. If you want the long answer, you can come ask me about it later. Um, but home is kind of a fluid word for me. So home right now is Morgantown, West Virginia with you people. So, yep. Third disclaimer is that, I'm so sorry if this is disappointing, but I will not be singing my sermon to you tonight. I know. I know. I actually talk like a normal person, so that's what I'm going to do tonight for you guys. So um, as you guys know, we've been doing this series over the Minor Prophets. Have you guys enjoyed it? Yeah, it's been awesome. I've loved hearing from like so many different voices this semester. It's been awesome. And for those of you who are new, basically what we've been doing is kind of like a um, like a flyover of the Minor Prophets. So every week we kind of touch down on like a different part of a different book in really no particular order. And the, the point of this is not to like give you like a comprehensive, super detailed understanding of each of the Minor Prophets, but really just to highlight some things that help you understand a little bit better and get you excited to explore them more on your own, which hopefully you guys have been doing. So tonight we are landing on the book of Joel, the book of Joel. You can turn there with me. It's nestled right between Hosea and Amos, both of which we've actually talked about already. But Joel, this is so cool. So there's not a whole lot of info about Joel. When you look into him, we don't really have a whole lot of details about time and and all of these things, but if you look for some kind of clues in Joel, you'll see um, that there's actually some stuff we can kind of figure out. And scholars have been able to make some educated guesses about just the time period of Joel and that kind of thing. So if you glance at the first chapter of Joel, you'll see that he kind of has this like address. And even if you just look at it and not read it, you can see that he addresses all these different people as he goes along. He talks to priests, he talks to farmers, he talks to children, he even talks, talks to drunkards, to drunks. And so, um, so he talks to all these different people, and, uh, but what's interesting is that he doesn't talk, there's one person he doesn't talk to, and that is the king, okay? There's no king mentioned at all in this book, which is interesting for this time, because that would have been customary in an address like this for you to, to address the king, right? So if we do a little bit of digging, if we jump back a few books, we actually find that there is one instance 
in the, um, during the kingdom of Judah's like time period that there was no king in Judah, but there was a queen. And if you guys remember, do you remember the thing about the divided kingdom? We've talked about that. So we had Israel, the whole nation of Israel is divided for a certain period of time. You can read about it during the book of Kings. Um, but there's Israel at the north and Judah in the south. And so this is, this is in Judah that we're talking about. Okay, and you can look at it in 2 Kings 11 if you want to read about it later. Um, but during this time, there was no king. Well, there was a king, but he died. His name was King Ahaziah, however you say that. Kind of sounds like you're sneezing. But um, <laughs> King Ahaziah, he was killed, and his mother ascended the throne. This is about like 841 to 835 B.C., okay? So she comes onto the throne, and her name is Queen Atalia, okay? And you probably never heard of her before, but you might have heard of her mama, who was Queen Jezebel. Anybody heard of Queen Jezebel? Even if you didn't grow up in church, you might have heard her name. We kind of use that to describe a certain kind of woman that I won't describe tonight. But um, she was a bad lady. We'll just say that. She was so wicked that her servants pushed her out the window and she got eaten by dogs. So it was pretty bad, yeah. And her daughter, Queen Atalia, was like not much better. Um, she basically, as soon as she ascended the throne, she started just like massacring all the descendants of the line of Judah, like everybody. She like, didn't want anyone to take her throne from her. But miraculously, there was one little baby named Joash, and he was rescued by his aunt and a priest. He was rescued. It was pretty crazy. Um, and so, but this, this is just like, this lady is just crazy. She's insane, okay? So Judah is like chaos central right about now. All right, when Joel comes on the scene, Judah is just like, what do we do about this woman? They're, they're not doing anything about her. She's just wreaking havoc. She's like got all these temples to foreign gods. It's just bad stuff going on, and she's killing all these people. Um, and so Judah is not doing anything about it. So when Joel comes on the scene, he's like, guys, you need to get your act together, right? Get your act together. Get rid of this queen. You need to obey God and follow him again. So what Judah needs at this point is a wake-up call, a wake-up call. But what's really interesting about this story about Joel is that before God sent Joel, the prophet, to speak to them, he actually sent something else. And we are going to watch a few minutes of a video of what God sent to Judah. species on the planet that responds as quickly and as dramatically to the good times as the desert locust. Eggs that have remained in the ground for 20 years begin to hatch. The young locusts are known as hoppers, for at this stage they're flightless. They find new feeding grounds by following the smell of sprouting grass. Normally, it takes four weeks for hoppers to become adults. But when the conditions are right, as now, their development switches to the fast track. As the vegetation in one place begins to run out, the winged adults release pheromones, scent messages, which tell others in the group that they must move on. 
literally hundreds of tons of vegetation. They have to keep on moving. The swarm travels with the wind. It's the most energy-saving way of flying. Following the flow of wind means that they're always heading toward areas of low pressure, places where wind meets rain and vegetation starts to grow. As they fly, swarms join up with other swarms to form gigantic plagues several billion strong and as much as 40 miles wide. They will consume every edible thing that lies in their path. Ugh. Does anybody remember last summer, the cicadas? Okay, thankfully I was in Texas for most of that, but when I got back, they were like everywhere. We had people here sending us videos of that, like it was so disgusting. And actually, fun fact, their cycle or whatever you call it, like they died literally a week before Charles and I got married and our entire wedding was outside. So praise Jesus, the cicadas did not attack us. But can you imagine like living through something like that? Isn't that insane? Has anyone here ever lived through a locust swarm? No? Okay. I don't live in the desert, really. Um, but, uh, but yeah, this is crazy. Um, and so Joel actually describes this for us. If you want to turn to Joel 2, we're going to read what he has to say about this locust swarm, this basically this plague that God sent to Judah. This is Joel 2, 1 through 11. It says, Blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. Like dawn spreading across the mountains, a large and mighty army comes, such as never was in ancient times, nor ever will be in ages to come. Before them, fire devours, behind them, a flame blazes. Before them, the land is like the Garden of Eden, and behind them, a desert waste. Nothing escapes them. They have the appearance of horses. They really do. They gallop along like cavalry with a noise like that of chariots. They leap over the mountaintops like a crackling fire consuming stubble, like a mighty army drawn up for battle. At the sight of them, nations are in anguish. Every face turns pale. They charge like warriors. They scale walls like soldiers. They all march in line, not swerving from their course. They do not jostle each other. Each marches straight ahead. They plunge through defenses without breaking ranks. They rush upon the city. They run along the wall. They climb into the houses like thieves they enter through the windows before them the earth shakes the heavens tremble the sun and moon are darkened and the stars no longer shine the lord thunders at the head of his army his forces are beyond number and mighty is the army that obeys his command the day of the lord is great it is dreadful who can endure it Whew. this is intense right so intense 
So this swarm of locusts has come and literally devastated everything that Judah holds dear, right? All of their livelihood. They can't even sacrifice. Chapter one, it says they can't even sacrifice sacrifices to God to try to make things right because everything is gone. They have nothing to sacrifice, right? Everything is gone. And what's crazy about something like this is you don't get exempt from a natural disaster, right? Whether you're rich or poor, it doesn't matter. Like everybody takes the hit, right? This is crazy. So Joel comes and these people are, they're just devastated. They're devastated by this locust swarm. But Joel sees something in this that they don't. Joel sees that this plague of locusts isn't an accident. He sees that God himself is behind this. Or really, as verse 11 kind of shows us, that God is in front of this. God is out in front of this swarm of locusts like a commander would be leading his army. Isn't that crazy? So God's behind this. So there's two big truths that we are going to kind of touch on tonight. It's really it's going to be kind of woven through everything we talk about. So I want you to write them down. Think about them as we move forward, okay? The first big truth is this. God is not content to let us stay as we are. God is not content to let us stay as we are. The second big truth is this, and this one's a little bit harder to swallow. God will do whatever it takes to make sure we don't stay as we are. God will do whatever it takes. Now, I don't know about you, but my heart is pretty messy and pretty ugly most of the time. And just like Judah, you know, I let these imposters come and steal the throne of my heart and wreak havoc on my life. I let comparison come in there, right, and sit on the throne. And what happens? I become, I become envious and selfish and even hopeless because I'm just trying so hard to compare myself to people, but I never measure up, right? Or maybe I, I let a significant other come there. If I put my husband there, then I become clingy and demanding and insecure because that's not his job to be on the throne of my heart. He wreak havoc in my life when I let anything but Jesus sit there. And the Bible says in multiple places that there is no one who does good, not even one. Nobody does good. In Romans 3.23, it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are pretty messed up. And I think whether or not you believe that Jesus is the son of God or you walk with God in any way, whether or not you believe that, I think we can agree when we look honestly at our own hearts and our own lives that things are not as they should be, right? We look at our world. We look at our government. We look at our families, our relationships, we look at our own hearts. Things are not as they should be. And God is saying, I'm not content to let you stay as you are. I will do whatever it takes. I'll do whatever it takes. And even if you feel like you're in a good place, God isn't content to let you stay there either. There's always more. God has more for us. So Judah was in a pretty bad spot, right? pretty bad spot. And for whatever reason, nobody was listening. I don't know why, but they weren't listening. So God knew the only way he could get their attention was to send a swarm of locusts. Now, hopefully it doesn't take a swarm of locusts for God to get our attention, because I don't want that. So what we see here in action is grace. You're probably like, wait, what? Swarm of locusts? God's grace that doesn't seem to be the same thing, right? Okay, well, bear with me. Hopefully, it'll make a little bit more sense as we go along. So let's pick up where we left off. Joel 2, 12 and 13. God is speaking. He says, Even now, declares the Lord, 
Return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Gracious and compassionate. Doesn't really sound like the God at the head of this locust army, does it? Kind of interesting. So if you know me, you know I love to do word studies. Um, I like to get on Blue Letter Bible, shameless plug. You should go get it. It's an app, and it's awesome. Um, but I love to get on there and see what words like mean in their original language. And so I got on, and I, I looked up this word gracious. And this word gracious comes from a Hebrew root verb, which means to be gracious, to show pity or favor, or to have mercy. And the idea with this word is really cool, um, how it would have been used, was this idea of bending or stooping in kindness to an inferior. Bending or stooping in kindness to an inferior. Okay, so imagine a mighty king bending and stooping in kindness to a lowly beggar, right? This is the idea of gracious. It's undeserved. It can't be manipulated. The beggar can't make the king notice him, right? It's, it's of the king's own will that he's gracious. It's because it's who he is, not what he does, right? That's what gracious is. Bending or stooping in kindness to an inferior. I love this quote, Kathleen Falsani. She's an American journalist um, and uh, author. She says this. She says, justice is getting what you deserve, Mercy is not getting what you deserve, and grace is getting what you absolutely don't deserve. Benign goodwill, unprovoked compassion, the unearnable gift. Justice for Judah would have been this locust swarm coming in, destroying everything, and that's it. End of story. They deserved it. They got punished. Whatever, right? That would be justice. They get what they deserve. Mercy would have been maybe not sending the plague at all or God stepping in and being like, all right, that's enough. You know, you guys just keep doing what you're doing. That would have been mercy. No interaction with God. But grace is different. Grace is God riding in front of that locust army and coming down in person and offering a way for Judah to be redeemed, to make things right. It's God stepping down and kindness to the lowly beggar, right? We all have seasons in our lives when the locusts come. We all do. And justice would be getting what we deserve, right? It would be getting, um, you know, no one, no one does good, not even one, right? That, that's what the Bible says. And so it would be us getting what we deserve and these swarms coming and devastating everything that we hold dear. Mercy would be God just kind of saying, okay, like, I'll stop this early, or I won't, I, you know, I'll protect you. I'll make sure nothing bad happens to you, so you can keep doing your own thing. But grace is different. Grace is God saying, I'm coming down there. I'm coming to you. I'm going to meet you right where you're at. Grace is God getting his hands dirty and stooping down and meeting us. It's an encounter with the living God that changes us forever. That's what grace is. But here's the thing. I have to receive it. So I have water in my cup. It says wifey. Yes. Um, I have water in my cup, right? And um, whether I take a drink of this or not doesn't doesn't change the properties of the water. It's still life-giving. It's still necessary for my survival, right? If I don't drink it, it definitely affects me, right? If I don't drink enough water, I will die. But if I drink it, then I'll live, right? Grace is like that. Okay? Grace is available to us. 
It doesn't change. God doesn't love you any less or any more because of something that you do. It is, it's just who he is. He is gracious, right? That grace is available for us no matter what, but I have to receive it. I have to know that without it, I will die. I won't survive. Does this make sense? Yeah? You guys are a hard crowd. Stony faces. Okay. Um, so we need it. We need grace, but how? How do we, how do we receive grace? Well, let's look at Joel 2.13 again. I think it should be up there. Um, Joel 2.13. Joel says two things. He says, rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord. So the first thing he says, in order to receive grace, we have to rend our heart and not our garments. You're like, what does that mean? So this word rend, it literally means to tear or split asunder. Jews traditionally in that day and still today would literally rip or like tear their clothes in grief or sorrow. It was like an outward expression of of like an inward state of grief and sorrow, right? They would tear their clothes. But Joel says that's not enough. You can't just do the outward stuff. You have to rend your heart. You have to, you have to literally like tear apart your heart. It's kind of violent, but he says we have to be broken. Just like hard soil has to be like broken up in order for seeds to be planted in it, our hearts have to be broken, they have to be soft in order for us to receive grace. Anne Voskamp, um, she writes this book, 1,000 Gifts. It's awesome. If you've read it, you know. It's amazing. You should read it. She says this about being rent. She says, I wonder if the rent in the canvas of our life backdrop, the losses that puncture our world, our own emptiness, might actually become places to see, to see through to God. That which tears open our souls, those holes that splatter our sight, might actually become the thin, open places to see through the mess of this place to the heartaching beauty beyond, to him. God will do whatever it takes to get our attention. For some of us, this takes more than others. But what if these torn and broken places in our lives really were the places through which we saw God, through which we received his grace and his mercy? What if being broken really was the only way to receive God's grace? So I have a really sweet friend, Sam. She's going to come share just a couple minutes of her story, so give it up for her, and then we'll jump back in. Hi, guys. Yeah, I'm Samantha. Um, So Katie asked me if I wanted to share, and so I said, yeah. Um, So my freshman year up here, so just a quick backstory. So I grew up in church, but I didn't really have a relationship with Jesus. So I lived, like, a life that I wanted to live, basically, doing all the wrong things, but things that I wanted to do. And then my freshman year, I came up to school um, up here, and um, I lived with my brother and one of my friends from back home. And so life was good. You know, I thought I had everything under control. Um, And then one night, I went to pick up my brother, and we were in a car accident. And my brother didn't make it. And so just, like, my brother basically – so this is an opportunity. I told Katie to talk about him because I love him to death. But – so he's like my best friend, and so sorry if I'm shaky, but like definitely my best friend, and losing him definitely like was something that was like heartbreaking and like really rough, and and so through the whole process of it, it was like basically just me like denying what had happened, like oh you know it's like he didn't really die, like it's okay, like you know it's just I'll wake up, but I didn't, you know it was like true, and so. 
through all of that, like, I took a semester off, and then when I came back up to school, um, I, I came to small group. I came to Katie's small group, actually, because um, my roommate didn't want to walk alone. She just walked in. But, um, but yeah, so I went to small group, and I met a bunch of amazing girls, and, and then that's when I, like, started to see, like, people that love Jesus really are different, and so... I, like, started to really, like, grow in my relationship with Jesus, and so I took what broke me, like, the the accident, like, truly, like, broke me, and, like, a part of my heart is, like, broken, but, like, through that, like, like just that, like, t- quote said, it, like, is true, like, when you have those tears in your heart, it's when, like, you can really see Jesus, and, like, if you'll allow him, or if you'll even allow yourself to take away, like, what we consider, like, what is going to be lasting, and we see that, like, his grace is good and, like, his love is good, that it really can change you. And so I could have taken that situation and allowed it to make me, like, super bitter, like, just, like, run away from the Lord rather than, like, run to him just because that would probably be the most easiest thing to do is just constantly taking my emotions out and, and just living living a, a life of whatever I wanted to do because I didn't care. But... I allowed that to help me go closer to God. And so I truly, truly believe, like, if the accident wouldn't have happened, like, and I hate to say it, but, and I would have never admitted it before I had a relationship with Jesus, but I truly believe now that, like, the Lord used that, that, that situation, that hard and terrible thing that I went through and my family went through to, like, bring me closer to God. And so I know some of you guys, like, have, like, things that you've gone through and you're, like, broken in different ways and, like, you know, all of our stories are different, like, even if we've, like, lost a family member or a friend, whatever it is, like, we're all different, but we're all, like, still fighting the same fight, like, we're still striving for a relationship with Jesus, and so if you'll allow him to, like, take your situation and <laughs> and just give him your heart, like, he truly will, like, mend it, and, <laughs> but yeah, um, yeah, I think that's it, <laughs> Thank you, Sam. Love you, girl. Some of you guys have walked through some really hard things. Your lives have been torn in so many different places. And as you desperately kind of try to sew these pieces back together, your heart kind of screams out, you know, why, God, why? Why would something like that happen? Why would you let my brother die? Why did you stand by while my parents got divorced? Why didn't you step in when my best friend betrayed me? Why did you let my grandfather abuse me? Or why, God, didn't you stop me from going to that party? Any other party, you know, why that one when this thing happened? Why did you let me say those unkind words that I I can't take back? Or, you know, how could you have let me be so stupid? Whether we're the ones that are hurt or we're the ones that did the hurting, we blame God, you know? We, We just wrestle with this, like, regret and remorse as we just keep trying to sew these pieces back together by ourselves, right? And then more gets torn. I keep trying to sew it back together. And I'm, I'm not saying that God is, is always the one doing the tearing. That's a whole other question that I'm not getting into tonight, although I'd be happy to talk to you about it later, but I'm not saying God is always the one doing the tearing, but even if he was, even if he was, would you be okay with that being the way that God got your attention? 
Are you willing for him to do whatever it takes to win your heart? What if what we see as, you know, God's judgment or his punishment or whatever was really God's grace in our lives saying, over my dead body will I let you live a stupid life. I want the best for you. I'm not content for you to stay as you are. I want more for you. I want more. I want more. I want more. What What if that's what God's grace was sometimes? There's this beautiful verse. It's kind of hard, but it's, it's really beautiful. It's in Hosea 6. One through two, it says, Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he'll revive us. On the third day, he will restore us, that we may live in his presence. He's torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. His grace will meet us where we are, whatever it takes. Did you know that Jesus was broken for us? you think about that? The most perfect, spotless man, God in the flesh, didn't deserve anything bad to happen to him, right? But he let himself be broken. His life was ripped apart in anguish. His body was literally ripped and torn apart. And look what God did through it. Because of that, you're sitting in here. You, you have the opportunity to walk with Jesus. You have the opportunity to have life because of that brokenness. Isn't that pretty crazy? So what does it look like to rend your heart? First, you have to be grieved by your sin. You have to be grieved by your sin. You're not going to recognize your need for a savior unless you recognize how ugly your heart really is. You need to look at your heart and we need to be grieved by our sin. And the second thing is you have to let your heart be soft. Let your heart be soft. When these wake-up calls come, when these things happen, are you going to let them push you towards Jesus or away? Are you going to let your heart be soft or are you going to harden your heart to what God wants to do in your life and the grace that he wants to give you? Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord. This is the second thing that Joel tells us to do is to return to the Lord. This word is its another word for repent. And this word literally means to turn around or reverse, right? To do a 180. To take a step in the opposite ter- direction. To turn away from your sin and towards God. For some of you, you've been walking in a certain direction for maybe a while. And you need to turn around. Not just like 5 degrees or 20 degrees, but like the full 180. Right? You need to turn around. This calls for drastic measures when we do this. It might be that boyfriend or girlfriend that doesn't really want to live for Jesus like you do. And it's, it's time to say, no more games, no more compromises, no more excuses. This needs to be done so I can actually give my, my full heart to Jesus and not keep trying to make this work. It might be that drastic. Or maybe it's just a, it's a pastime or a hobby that's just kind of gone a little over the edge and it's it's kind of consuming your life. Maybe it's working out or it's playing video games or it's eating. <laughs> Maybe something that's good in moderation, but it has gotten to a new level of not good, right? It's it's kicked Jesus out of his rightful place on the throne of your heart and it's taken over and it's wreaking havoc in your life. And maybe it needs to be a drastic measure that says, all right, I'm done with this for like a while until I can learn some self-control. Maybe it's bringing someone into that to, to hold you to that, you know? Whatever it is, maybe it's maybe it needs to be some drastic measures taken. Or maybe you've been wrestling 
with God for a while now. You've had questions about God, and it's, it's time to let go of the fear and the doubt and the critical spirit and just say yes to Jesus and let him answer your questions in his own way, in his own time. Maybe it's, it's time to stop fighting and make a drastic measure and say, yes, I'm going to follow Jesus. I don't know what direction you've been walking in, but I think some of us need to turn around. <laughs> we need to turn around. And this is hard. This is really hard stuff. I'm sorry, this is like so heavy, but I just felt this on my heart that this needed to be said tonight for us. And I, and I know these things. I've, I walked through my own things, and I would tell you story after story. We don't have time tonight unless you want to be here forever. But again, you can come talk to me after. But I have my own stories I've stuck my arms out and, like, fought God, you know, when he has, like, brought stuff into my life that I didn't want. You know, these swarms of locusts that come, and I'm like, I don't want that, you know? But it's when we, like, are rigid when we fall that our arms break, right? If you're soft and you kind of tuck and roll, you might get some bruises, but you'll be okay. But when we stiff-arm God, we get crushed. And I have been crushed. And I've received tears in the canvas of my life but in that I have also found grace and peace and forgiveness and a wholeness I never could have dreamed of and the reason is because what's so beautiful is that when we rend our hearts and we return to the Lord scripture promises that God will return to us God will return to us it says it at the end of that verse. It says that God will relent from sending calamity. In other scriptures, it says, God says, <laughs> um, he says, you know, return to me, and I will return to you. It's a promise. G. Campbell Morgan, he's an amazing author. He says this, but oh, the sweet story of his grace. In his present dealings with men, the love of his heart is always a factor, but it never acts at the expense of righteousness. Wherever the lesson of his chastisement is learned and a man or a nation and penitence returns to him, his judgment is restrained in mercy. When you repent, God repents. That is the great and gracious message of this wonderful prophecy. We do not deserve God's grace. We don't deserve it at all. But he gives it so lavishly. And he promises that when we return, in fact, He's already there. You know, he's already turned to you. He is writing on the front of that, whatever that, that thing is in your life. And he's there, and he's ready to meet you, and he's ready to get his hands dirty. He's ready to do whatever it takes to grab a hold of your heart. The band can go ahead and come back up as we kind of get to a close. You guys remember the people of Judah? Remember, remember those guys? It's pretty cool. If you read forward, um, they finally plucked up the courage and they got rid of that really nasty queen. They returned to the Lord. They rent their, their hearts, not just their garments, and they returned to the Lord. And it says that, that the city was calm once again and there was peace and they put little Joash on his rightful throne and they rebuilt the temple of God and they started worshiping him again. God returned to them. There was grace. They received that grace. It's pretty cool. So I think we need to be broken tonight. One of my favorite authors, Brennan Manning, he says, God loves you unconditionally as you are and not as you should be because nobody is as they should be. Ragamuffins have a singular prayer. God, be merciful on me, a sinner. God, be merciful on me, a sinner. 
And maybe this needs to be your prayer tonight. Maybe God is shedding some light on some things in your heart. Maybe you're grieved by your sin tonight. You need to to let Jesus minister to you and speak to you tonight. And if that's you, I want you to be bold. I want you to do something bold. And what I mean by that is doing something that's uncomfortable for you. So if that means coming down here to the front, we call this an altar, coming down here to the front or to the sides and getting on your knees and letting Jesus minister to you, or maybe it's going and finding someone. Maybe there's some things you need to confess or you need to talk to somebody. Maybe that is a bold move for you, or maybe a bold move is literally just raising your hands in desperation for Jesus. You need to decide what that is for you, and I want you to be bold tonight if that's you. Or maybe you think this is a bunch of hogwash. Love that word. Maybe you think... You're like, ah, I don't really need a savior. My challenge for you is not to go talk to anybody else. I want you to talk to God. It can be right there in your seat. You can get out and go somewhere else, but I want you to talk to God. I want you to be honest with God. I want you to tell him what you feel, tell him what you think. And when you're done, I want you to be quiet and listen and let God be honest with you. And expect and believe that God will speak to you. I want you to have a conversation with God tonight if that's you. And lastly, maybe you've been hurt. Maybe you've been hurt. Maybe there's been some some swarms of locusts that have really devastated some things in your life. Or maybe there's lack of forgiveness there. There's somebody that hurt you or, or whatever. Or you, you hurt somebody. I don't know. But if that's you, I want you to find someone and ask them to pray for you tonight. Or if it's a forgiveness issue, I want you to go find them and make it right. But I want you to ask someone to pray with you tonight. Again, you can come to the front, you can go to the sides, you can stay in your seat. For everybody, do something bold. This is my challenge for you tonight. Do something bold that stretches you. Leonard Cohen says, Ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Jesus, God, we recognize our our need for you tonight. God, we recognize our, our need to be broken. Lord, I know that this isn't maybe like the normal talk about grace. Lord, but I, I just, I feel so strongly, Jesus, that you are speaking to so many of us in this room that have pushed you away for so long, and the things in their life have just just devastated them. And God, you want to say, I'm here. You're saying, I- I'm not content to let you stay as you are, and I know that hurt, but it's, it's for the best, and I-, I want it to make you whole. I want it to bring you to me. And, and God, I just feel like, yeah, you're, you're speaking to many of us right now. And so, Jesus, I just, God, I just ask for soft hearts tonight, Lord. I just ask for soft hearts, God that these cracks and these rips and these tears in our lives, they would be places through which your light shines, through which you come and you meet us, and we receive your grace, maybe for the first time. God, we, we desperately need you, Jesus. We desperately need you, God. We desperately need you, Jesus. 
We love you, Lord. We invite you into this time as we respond. We believe that you are already here speaking to us and moving in us, Lord. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you. So I have a newfound love that many of my friends know. It's a growing and propagating succulents. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. I don't know if you've ever seen it happen, but basically you pull off a dead leaf. Well, not dead, but you pull it off and then it dies. It dies. You let it dry out for a little bit and then you place it on top of this kind of watered soil. And within a few weeks, look what starts to grow at the end of that leaf. Isn't that amazing? A little baby succulent. It shoots off these bright, hot pink roots, and it starts growing. It starts growing from this dead leaf. Dead leaf. I don't fully understand it, but I can see it in all of creation and in my life. God brings life from death. God brings life from death, and there is something mysterious and miraculous that happens in brokenness. It's called grace. This is what happens. God brings life from death. Later on in chapter 2 of Joel, this is verses 23-27, it says, Be glad, O people of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the autumn rains of righteousness. He sends you abundant showers, both autumn and spring rains, as before. The threshing floors will be filled with new grain. The vats will overflow with new wine and oil. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. And you will praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be shamed. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God and there is no other. May you leave this place in the knowledge that God is not through with you yet. May you leave here with the realization that our God is in the business of restoration. What is broken, he will mend. What is torn, he will heal and he will make new. What has been taken from you, he will restore a hundredfold. Be it in this life or the next, that is a promise. So may you be blessed, may you be made whole, and may you have hope through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We love you guys. Thank you for coming tonight. Have a great week.